As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is a podcast from The Times, sports newspaper of the year. And welcome to the game here with a definitive opinion from an action-packed weekend in the Barclays Premier League. I don't normally say Barclays, but, you know, I just thought we need to show some love to the sponsors. Because as I found out if, when I went to get our cash the other day, if I ask for a receipt, which I'm most likely throw on the ground, thereby littering, I have a chance to win a ticket to uh, win two tickets, actually, to a Premier League game, which got me all excited. Overbanks are available. Yes, but you don't get a chance to win. And by the way, personally, I bank with HSBC, and I'm very happy with them. Uh. Joining me to provide said opinion, I have Rory Smith, whose preferred bank is? The Halifax. Clive Petty, who, who's opted for? Nat West. And Ollie Kay, who owns Coots. Coming up, uh, we'll discuss what happened at the Emirates. Was the game worth 62 pounds? We'll also be asking if the Atlantic League could save not just Scottish football, but uh, Dutch football, Belgian football, Portuguese football, and all sorts of formerly great footballing nations, or whether it's just a stupid idea. But obviously, we're going to be starting at Old Trafford, Manchester United and Liverpool. Ollie, I don't know if this was the first game back for Vidic and Ferdinand. I, I'm, I'm assuming it wasn't. Um, but I thought the two of them did okay. I, I know there was some suggestion, you know, Evans, whatever else, but it worked, right? Oh, well, it did. I mean, I, I didn't think they defended particularly well in the last half hour. They, they sort of invited a lot of pressure forward, which clearly wasn't a, the defenders' fault. But, but, but they were troubled a lot by the running of uh, Suarez and Sturridge. And I, I, I thought... Um, I thought Ferdinand did very well. I thought Vidic did well under the circumstances, but looked a little bit rusty. But on, on the whole, I would say uh, I would say Ferdinand Vidic did well without looking like anything like the partnership of uh, three years ago. Clive, I want to start with uh, with well, I started with Ali, obviously, but I want to chuck in a stat here because uh, for those who, who like history, the um, the record. Well, I, actually, no, but I'll quiz you. Do you know who what, who holds the record for most points in a single top flight season? Chelsea with 95. Yeah. There you go. See, he's good. Uh, I'd have said that given the chance, but you know. <laughs> Manchester United are on pace to equal that record, which I find extraordinary because that Chelsea side looked so dominant. This United side, we've been saying it all season, you know, we can all see areas where they can improve. Kagawa's been injured. Rooney's injured now. Vidic was injured. Um you look at this and you say, goodness, if they all start playing consistently well, then they have a chance to, to beat Chelsea's record, even though Chelsea looked a lot more dominant, I think, in, you know, when they set the record than United do now. I think it's, it's kind of built on different things, wasn't it? Chelsea 
was almost built on you, you, you will not beat us they, it, was a, it was a good solid base and then um, built on a sort of defensive you won't, you won't break us down and then we'll have the, the big guys who will, who will break you down and score whereas uh, United purely surviving on their attack at the moment as far as I can see and Robin Van Persie uh, and Welbeck had a great game uh, yesterday um, they're, they're scoring enough goals but they do look vulnerable Ollie's right and if, if any other team if it hadn't been Liverpool yesterday any other team with a bit more nous about them uh, I mean Liverpool did well took the game to them in the last half hour and United did look very shaky and I was under the impression that any other team on their metal may well have at least come away with a point there and we've been talking about something completely different so they are on course for 95 but the comparison with Chelsea is slightly different there's I think United if they keep scoring and Van Persie keeps fit and they keep going forward that's how they're going to do it but they can't rely on defending like they did yesterday Also Roy what's the what conclusion can we draw I mean can we conclude they can actually be much better than they are Or, you know, do you look at it the other way and say that, they're, that at some point their luck will run out? I don't know. I, it's very hard to draw conclusions or to come to sort of definitive decisions about this United side because you look at it and you, you do you do think, right, well, they essentially don't have any sort of holding midfield player. They don't have any sort of shield in front of the defence. The defence itself looks a bit shaky. They're conceding loads of goals. Van Persie's getting them out of jail a lot. But on the other hand, their attack's firing perfectly and has all season. They look great going forward. So it's... They're kind of one and the other, do you know what I mean? It's very hard to say, well, it's definitely this, and if they did this, they'll be better, and if they stop doing this, then they'll be worse. I think they're kind of a... I don't know, it's... I don't want to say that it's, it's happened by, by chance, because that's, that, that would undermine the work that they've done, but it's very hard to see w whether they are the side that would improve and be dominant, or the side that would get slightly worse and be mediocre. Oh, yeah, I remember a, a year or two ago, this is what I was going to ask you about, we used to have these sort of cliches about, well, you know, if you lose four games in a season, then there's no way you can win the Premier League, and, you know, people said it as if it was a fact. Mm. Manchester United have already lost three games this year. Um, so I... I I think we can probably safely say that that was just a very stupid statement to make, yeah? Well, I, I think um, I think uh, avoiding defeat is perhaps overrated. If, if, you look, if you look at the last few seasons, I think um, I think there was a season where Liverpool lost fewer games than Manchester United but ended up finishing second. Um, Manchester City have uh, lost fewer games than United this season. The fact is that, you know, three points for a win. United are extremely good at winning matches extremely good at knowing what to do even if they're sort of 1-0 down with 10 minutes left and I think the longer United win matches I don't think they, they will concede you know, I don't think they'll worry if they lose one match a month I thought that's that Is, is absolutely true that, that drawing is completely overrated at the end of the, the QPR Spurs game on Saturday lunchtime QPR got a throw in with 30 seconds of injury time left and you could see Redknapp telling Sean Derry I think not not to you know to hold the ball not to get on with the throw in keep the clean sheet surely with 30 seconds to go you've got a throw in it, it was five yards from, from Spurs' touchline you just you put two, two or three players in the box and you see what happens surely I mean a point's not worth that much to anyone at either end of the table yeah although you are playing against a team with Gareth Bale and Aaron Lennon who yeah, are faster a, than God and then you run the length of the pitch and no time flat and boom. but your reward is greater than your risk because if you lose one point then that's bad but it's not going to make the difference if you gain two it, it could be could be hugely important I, I see the logic of that but Clive is making a face well, so no, I, I do see the logic of that it's um Uh, I'm wondering whether QPR in in, the, in their position I can see that logic perhaps further forward but in QPR in their position they're playing Tottenham it's kind of like a 
that point is kind of like a bonus point. If you, oh yeah, no, absolutely. Kind of, yeah. But it, they'd already kind of got the point, assuming right. that Gareth Bale's not going to run the, I, that, yeah, the pitch. I, yeah, assuming that Gareth Bale doesn't I, do what he and says. I, th- yeah. I think okay. what I think what United have done is they recognise that that. I don't know what the stats are, but United don't seem to be drawing games. City draw no, a lot of they've games. They've only drawn one. That was the, the cup replays. The only yeah. big draw they've had all, all season. Um, moving on, so obviously there was, there was this change in the game because United, you know, looked in control. Um, I, I think um, Ollie wrote in his uh, in his match report that they looked in control without necessarily looking uber dominant. It was more of a mature um, uh, performance. But then something changed. Um, Ollie, what changed? They seemed to take their foot off the gas. Liverpool had already got Sturridge on and uh, they seemed to release the handbrake a little bit and go for it. And I think it's been a familiar trend for Liverpool at Old Trafford to only start playing um, at 2-0 down in recent seasons. Um, Liverpool went for it a little bit, started to cause problems, pulled the goal back quickly and... I think from that point on, Liverpool looked confident and United looked nervous. And um, looking at the, the final probably 37 minutes, you, you would you would struggle to see how. Um, you know, I, I think Liverpool will be kicking themselves that they didn't get that second goal because they because they had enough possession uh, and enough time to make um, to make more of what of what they did in the in the closing stages. So, if you're Sir Alex, would you be worried about that? Not, not at all, really. I, I think. I mean, I think if if he was going to be overly worried about United's uh, problems at times when uh, you know there's a flow of attacking football upon them, you know they they, they struggle to they struggle to stem that flow. It's something that they've struggled with for four or five seasons, but it hasn't stopped them winning the Premier League more often than not. It hasn't stopped them um, reaching the latter stages of the Champions League more often than not. And I, I think if he was going to worry about it, he, he would have bought a defensive midfielder or changed the way they play at times uh, long ago. Clive, what changed for Liverpool is just the fact that they're two 0 down. Like, all right, we need to do something. Chuck on Sturridge, and you know, enough for the Joe Allen sideways passing. Yeah, Joe Allen was the very poor game. Um, Sturridge is pace combined with Suarez. I mean, when they came on, they did link up quite well. I mean, there was. A, quite a nice link up of, sort of short passes between the two of them and that pace and Suarez had a bit more space to suddenly start running at them and that did worry you know um, a timing for now a timing village um, but I think more to the point it said a lot about Liverpool in that this only started at 2-0 down I'm not quite perhaps there is something in that idea of you know they started quite timidly uh, they're 2-0 down oh dear well you know let's see what we can do now and they, the game was, you know, that's hard enough to do against a lot of teams like against, against Manchester United at Old Trafford I think it says something about perhaps the mentality of Liverpool that they did only really try doing this at 2-0 down and suddenly it became 2-1 and they thought oh, actually we could get something out of this and, and it pressed on the, the surprising thing was that United didn't actually see this themselves as far as I could work out and suddenly thought oh blimey we're you know, we're in a bit of danger here. Let's step up a gear again. They didn't seem to do that, and it, it did encourage Liverpool. Um, but as I say, I think it was more of a Liverpool thing that they only started playing almost when the game was gone. And if they can stop get get that out of it, who knows what might have happened? Ollie, but but Sturridge is a very different player from from Downing. Was it a case that they just started playing then, or was it a case that they're like, all right, we need to do something. Let's throw caution to the wind here. Um, and, and and add this sort of dimension of directness. Um, yeah, I, I think it was a bit of that. I mean, Liverpool's 
forward, you know, Liverpool's attacking play for the first 50 minutes was pretty much non-existent. I think just before the um, the village goal, um, there was that chance which Suarez set up for wisdom on the counter-attack. So, the, you know, they, they had finally begun to emerge from the shell just before United scored the second. But, it, I mean, as, as, as I said earlier, the there has been this sort of repeated issue with Liverpool under three different managers now. The three, the last three games at Old Trafford, they've uh, well, last three league games at Old Trafford certainly, they've been two 0 down early in the second half, and, and and only then have they really started playing. I, I think Liverpool are, are, are developing a, you know, it seems like they're developing a bit of an inferiority complex <laughs> again where United are concerned. I mean, it's probably understandable because they are, you know, that this team is far inferior um, to United's and and. They have been so for the last few years. They will look back on it as a, as an opportunity missed. Uh, Rory, you get the final word on this. Uh, Brendan Rodgers says that there really aren't twenty four points difference between these two clubs. Um, you know, and actually, the way he says it doesn't fully make sense to me because he says, "Well, the difference is depth," but then you know, depth obviously impacts performance and whatever else. But if you had to kind of judge where he is. Um, at, at this stage vis-a-vis the, the expectations vis-a-vis some of the choices that have been made and the way Liverpool are playing um, what grade do you give them thus far? I guess probably a, I don't know like a B I suppose B maybe a C plus I think I think I think I think the issue that Liverpool have is that there is among Liverpool fans there is a feeling that you look at play, you look at the first team and you've got players like Sturtle and Adder and Lucas, Joe Allen to an extent, and you think, do you know what, these are these are good players. Like most Liverpool fans when City came in for Adder in the summer would have said if Daniel Adder goes to a top side, he will be a you know a, a top class centre back. He's a brilliant ball player, you know, reads the game really well. But I think the issue that Liverpool now have to face and the reality they probably have to face is that those players aren't good enough to get them out of the situation they're in. Where Rodgers is, is eighth in the Premier League. That's where Liverpool are at the moment. What tends to happen with these podcasts is that I say something, then get loads of abuse on Twitter from loads of from loads of Liverpool fans. I think players like Sturtle, Agger, and Lucas are all great footballers, and they would they would get into most Premier League teams. What I don't think they are is good enough to take to to lift Liverpool out of their slump. That's not. I don't want. I don't want that to be the case. It just looks like it is. So if I may, if I may interpret your thought. A couple more Gerrards and Suarez, Suarez's, and then a young Gerrard perhaps, and then Lucas and Skirtle are fine as sort of like to fill in the eleven. Yeah, I guess, yeah, I think okay. they're they're good, they're good quality Premier League players. They're not enough to to take Liverpool to the next level. Um, I'm moving on to uh, the Emirates, Arsenal, and City. Um, obviously, this, this game changed. Early on, but I think it actually probably changed even before Koscielny's um, uh, red card when when Arteta went out. And we've talked about Arsenal's lack of a defensive midfielder. We we sort of stopped talking about it because it looked as if you know Arteta. I don't think I wouldn't call him a defensive midfielder, but he fills that position. He, he fouls people when he needs to. He gets in the way. Um, but then, of course, he goes out, and there's nobody. And then, then you, you, you got to, you know, chuck in Diaby, who's played five minutes in the last couple of months because the poor guy's always hurt. Uh, did were Arsenal kind of up against it even before kickoff as a result, Roy? 
Yeah, it's difficult to, to to draw huge conclusions from a game where where one team goes down to ten men after after ten minutes. But yeah, Arteta, no question, hugely important. He gives Arsenal a degree of control. He isn't. You're right. He's not a t- tough tackling midfield hard man. But he 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 reads the game well. He organises the midfield well, which is an incredibly underrated quality. Although he's not been as good this season as he was last, I don't think. In 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 my personal opinion, yeah, I think that set to Arsenal back. But the, t- the t- in terms of Liverpool's tentativeness and timidity, Arsenal were were t- timid even before Koscielny got sent off. Arsenal looked like a side who didn't think they were as good as Manchester City. They did seem to lack a spark. They didn't seem. I mean, as Wenger says, um, even with ten men, there's no reason you should still be able to organise yourself if you're a, a, a team such as Arsenal that you. Don't concede for well, you know you you try not to concede as much as anything else, and they didn't look organised. They didn't have enough work rate amongst the middle of the park. I mean, as you say, can't really blame Diaby. He's five minutes since September, I think, the guy's played. So uh, to throw him in against the champions was a was a big ask. But um, they seemed to just think that uh, Wilshire was going to do everything for them, and that's never going to be enough uh, against most teams, let alone Manchester City. So. It was difficult to judge uh, facing the 80 minutes, but I would have expected a lot more organisation from uh, from what is now an experienced Arsenal team. I think the, the thing is that Arsenal never looked like... Having 10 men for 80 minutes is a massive disadvantage. It's not a death sentence. No. Arsenal never looked like they, they had a way out... Of, of that situation even when Jekyll had missed the penalty it, you never looked at that and thought yeah Arsenal can think their way out of this problem that would have given a lot of teams a boost they're sort of like oh, God, you know, we've conceded a penalty just so you know so, and, and they got a huge let off it, to, to use the sort of Stuart Pearson there was no oh, that's, you know, let's build from here they just went on exactly the same merry way yeah. I, I, when, when Cassiani basically just bear hugged um, Jekko did Last week we had the whole sort of Suarez like crucifixion uh, over the cheating and so on. Rory's nodding along, so I'm guessing he he likes where I'm going with this. I might just throw it to him. From a sportsmanship cheating perspective, is this comparable to Suarez or some of the worst dives that we see? Well, no. I guess the um, the point no? the point with dives and handballs, if you if you don't like that sort of thing is that you're not getting punished you're not, ser- you're not serving your penalty for committing the crime whereas Koscielny did my, my issue with that red card well, no, so you are if you, if, you get, if you get caught diving and you get a yellow oh yeah if you get caught but it, people don't get angry if you get caught people get angry when people get away with it right so my issue with the Koscielny red now it was unquestionably a red just as companies which will no doubt come on to was unquestionably a red under the laws as they stand to me and uh, Gab will dis- you always disagree with everything everyone says so you'll unquestionably disagree with this you disagree to- with the company I'm sure about that Koscielny's crime was denying a goal an opportunity yes yes right even though I think Jekyll had probably misjudged the, the flight of the ball but looked like he'd he denied a goal opportunity. The punishment for that is the penalty. To me, the red card. I agree, I, I understand the, the calls for consistency. We've got it. referees always like 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 automata have to constantly sort of do the, interpret the rules the same way all the time. There can be no context. Blah blah blah. The punishment for me is the penalty. That's restoring the goal scoring opportunity. I think the I think sending the player off as well in that circumstance and suspending is, him and suspending him is overkill. Yeah, well, this is a good point. Um, I mean, personally, I don't think that the penalty alone can be punishment because otherwise we're going to see players like your, your pal Suarez standing on goal lines and handling the ball and and, and whatnot. And and that's exactly exactly why this rule was introduced. But Ollie, haven't IFAB addressed this? Haven't they? They 
sort of said that referees can have more discretions, and that there's the, uh, there's some situations where maybe maybe you give a yellow instead of a red while avoiding a penalty. Uh, yeah, I mean, a foul in the penalty area, even even when a player is sort of the last man, does not necessarily equate to a red card under the, the rules of this stand. It has to be the sort of clear denial of a, a goal-scoring opportunity, and, and there are all sorts of things like the, the direction they're moving in, the speed, the, the, you know, where the goalkeeper is, etc. So it's not it's not as black and white as it once was. But I mean, I, although I, I mean match officials talk about it as this sort of triple jeopardy situation where yes there's the penalty there's the red card there's the suspension and I can understand the, the grievance with that but then again if if a guy is you know if a team is 2-0 up um, in the last five minutes and he does it then you know, under a rule where players didn't get suspended then then there'd be no punishment whatsoever really exactly I, I think you know, the idea of introducing context to these things is is, is wrong. I, I don't think it should be about context. And I know people talk about common sense and referees officiating with common sense. I think referees should referee to the rules and what the rule books are, what the rule book says and to hell with common sense, basically. So when when Ollie runs the world, we'll have a whole army of robot automaton referees. And we'll all be much happier well, people. If he's running the world, then that'll be the same. That'd be true of the police as well, which would be awful, wouldn't it? So it, it Ollie's, it Ollie's basically unmasked himself as a fascist. Ollie's very much a law and order type of guy. Let's just put it that way. All right, Clive, speaking of law and order, the other big contentious point here was the company Red Card. Now, um, Rory said it's a red, so I'm not going to bother going to him for a while because I know he's wrong. No, no, um, no and, so I didn't say that. I, I didn't just, say he that. He said under the laws as they stand yeah. now, it was well, a red the, card. Okay, but that, that's, we, we live in football with the laws as they stand now, not in mm. not in some kind of, well, of, of Rory Smith utopia, right? Not yet. Okay, so the implication is that Mike Dean made the correct decision, right? Did, did he make the correct decision? Because from where I was... No, I have to say, Thank from you. the first time I the first time I saw this tackle, and I've I've seen various angles now, and I see no reason to change my mind. If I was Vincent Company, I would be very upset that I got sent Which off for that was. tackle too. Just to just just to recap here, um, he wins the ball. Mm. Uh, he's not. It's not a two footed challenge because one leg is, is beneath the other. Uh, he doesn't leave the ground, Found. and most importantly, his body is never out of control. He's going directly into into Wilshire's pass, and Wilshire sees him coming. Um, I think that this is something where there's very little room for interpretation. It simply wasn't a red card. And I suspect that it's one of two things with Mike Dean. Either, you know, he had a wobbly in his mind and just saw it badly, or as was suggested on TV, Javi Garcia, who was sort of jogging, somehow got in his way, and he didn't actually see it as clearly as he would have. In which case, though, then that's even worse for Dean, because you shouldn't give uh, you know, award a red card based on something you don't see, and B, you might want to kind of you know move your rear end because he's actually walking as it happens. If you see the replay, he's not even trying to get in a position where where he can see it happening. I, I'm, I'm right here. Yes, yeah, Clive? I think. Thank you. I, I'm- as you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm, I'm low to agree with you, but I think, I think you're <laughs> right uh, in that Mike Dean, I think he probably was guessing a bit. I think he saw the, the impact and the shape of companies' tackle, which is probably equated to a number of lunging tackles that he's seen in the past but there was no lunge here there was he was what less than a foot away from yeah. uh Wilshire when he made that tackle it's almost impossible to make that kind of tackle without your foot leaving the floor for an instant and that's about the only time we did it, I mean, it was, for an instant he may have had and I, it's almost like we've gone back to some sort of haze code in the films in the 30s anyway what was this thing about having to keep one foot on the floor yeah. you, know, <laughs> you know it's not it's not a, a 1930s sex scene we're filming here it was, you know it was a perfectly he was not out of control it was not reckless uh, his eyes are on the ball all the time. He wins the ball. Final point here. I just want to check on this. Uh, as you may have uh, heard, uh, City got an allocation of 3,000 tickets. Um, Arsenal priced them at £62. Uh, City did not sell out their allocation. 912 12 of them were returned. Um, some of the best writing I, I've, I've seen on this, it actually comes from Ollie in Saturday's papers. Thank but you. I, thank you. are welcome. I just want to check, though, just in case. I, Tony, I'm mindful of the fact that Tony Evans isn't here. Does anybody think that the Premier League should legislate a maximum price for tickets or a maximum price for visiting fans? Is it in Germany they do the visiting tickets just the same as the cheapest home ticket? Is that right? Some, right. Something like that would probably be sensible. My take. What, what was the cheapest home ticket on Saturday? What wasn't the cheapest home ticket? Sixty-two pounds anyway. Probably about hundred and four quid. Yeah. I think that's the that, point I don't think. All right, I want to make a point about that because I, I, I go to Arsenal and Chelsea quite a lot, and people love to complain about high ticket prices and how oh the cheapest ticket is like ninety quid. It, it's not really because you buy a season ticket. We've always calculated on like the cheapest ticket for general sale. The cheapest ticket, if you look at the cost of a season ticket and divide it by the number of games, is always a lot less than the figures that are quoted in, in the newspapers. Um, so, so shouldn't that be um, reflected in the away ticket prices? The, I think that the, there's certainly an argument uh, to do that. But I also think that there are more creative ways um, for people to, to, to fight this rather than by legislation. First of all, it's very bad business and bad publicity for the Premier League when you have this situation. Um, what I might have been tempted to do if I were Sheikh 
Mansoor, and I was worried about this uh, financial fair play plot against me, which we all read about this morning, um, which none of us had ever heard about before. Um, I might have uh, bought out the entire ticket allocation, um, subsidized it myself, and told to and, and said and, you know and told my fans to go there and erect, put like a giant banner across that area and say like when Arsenal fans when you come to City you will only be charged X or uh, Arsenal price gougers or Cronky eats his boogers something to that effect to embarrass the league and to say, you know what, we need to address the situation. I think it's something that the league should take for the good of the league from, from a business perspective, um, because this obviously isn't good for the league, rather than have some kind of you know legislation from on high. Just, just on that, and I think and I, I can tell we're running out of time on this, but the, the talk of boycotts, it wasn't really a boycott of the city city end, it was more that 912 people, they couldn't find 912 people who could afford that money in, in this economic climate, that's totally understandable. Ticket prices are too high. Again, citing Germany as an example, the best way to make that point for fans is not to boycott games there's 900 seats in a 60,000 stadium you can't tell go to the games do what Dortmund do go to the games and then walk out because what the Premier League sells itself on is the spectacle of the fans and that's where the fans are involved you know, I, I completely agree this goes back to that remember the FA Cup semi-final a couple of years ago Liverpool uh, against uh, Everton I think it was and they had it at Wembley and, and they were all happy about tickets and whatever I would it's buy your tickets to the Wembley semi-final goodness knows you're a Liverpool fan you've been there tons of time and if you're an Everton fan you know you've got right, maybe you haven't been there as much recently but, um, but but go do that buy the tickets and then don't go have a giant erect giant screens in Stanley Park and watch it all together that would have sent a big two-fingered message but you know to do that you need fans to organize and I think at most football clubs certainly compared to other countries um, in England fans just aren't very organized at all and also it tends to sort of come down to tribal even with the City Arsenal stuff it, you, you saw Arsenal fans thinking that they were being attacked that, and sort of compare, saying oh it's ironic that it's City the, the City fans don't, aren't all as rich as Sheikh Mansour it's not a tribal issue it's something that has to be as you say organised by fans in general In our debate this week we're going to look at something that's uh, been talked about for um, well, maybe at least 10 years uh, I wrote a, a column on this uh, uh, many years ago when Rory was just a boy I think it was back in 2006 um, it's the issue of the uh, of the Atlantic League, and then the back, and then this was raised again last week by the um, by the Rangers owner Charles Green. The basic idea is that we're in a situation where the bigger European leagues, um, you could say the top five, obviously there's a big jump between the Premier League and, and Liga in terms of uh, of revenue. Although with the new um, Al Jazeera deal, maybe not for that long, but. The bigger leagues have such an inbuilt advantage in terms of revenue, and simply because they are bigger countries, not necessarily because they're that much better leagues, and it creates a, a vicious cycle from the perspective of the smaller countries where these people keep winning. And so you've got all these big clubs like Ajax and PSV and Anderlecht and Benfica and Celtic and Porto and Rangers who have huge crowds, who've won major European trophies, but because they play in little ditty leagues, um, they don't generate the TV income mostly. And they don't play against a good standard of opposition week in, week out. And so could they combine into a league, and the proposal was for the Atlantic League and involving those four nations, and actually play each other and have some sort of promotion relegation back to the domestic leagues and they could still play in their, in their cup competitions. And 
this was written off for a long time, but UEFA set a very important and little-known precedent about a year ago when they allowed the um, top flight of women's football in Belgium and Holland to run their own combined league. Basically, the women's clubs in those countries said, look, if, we, if you don't allow us to do this, we're not going to be competitive. It'll be too expensive. It'll be rubbish. We won't develop women's football. Um, and so they said, okay, fine, go ahead. So in some ways, that precedent has now been set. Um, Ali, I, I want to start with you, uh, whether this is something that that can happen and maybe maybe should happen. Uh, if it's if it's as a you know a supplement to what is already provided by the domestic league. Let's be very clear on this because people always get this wrong. It is mm. not a supplement. It is no. basically a higher tier that you get promoted to and then you get relegated from. Then I am entirely against it. I think Rangers and Celtic, whether they like it or not, their duty and their loyalty and commitment should be to Scottish football. That that, that is where they, um, you know, that is where they're based. It's not a sort of franchise type thing. That is where they're based. If Rangers or Porto or Ajax or whoever think well. We've outgrown our, our domestic game. We need to go. You know, we need to split from that and and go and pursue greater revenues uh, elsewhere. I just think. I mean, what's to stop Manchester United, Real Madrid, etc. doing the same? And obviously, nothing would stop it. Um, I, I think it would be awful for football. It might be good for those clubs concerned, but I, I, I'm sick of hearing that um, these decisions should be based on a club's revenues and, and so on. And if, nobody's are, saying that. Sorry, well, why, 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 who, who said that? It's it's a super league where it's based on revenues. You. Well, what would be the motivation? The motivation would be that you cited at the start was uh, was going to be about them not generating enough money because because they happen to to play in small smaller leagues. Yeah. So yes, it would be about revenue. And I, I'm as I said, I'm sick of hearing not from you, Gab, but I'm sick of hearing from clubs that um, all the, you know that all their motivation should be about. Um, Increasing revenue streams, etc., because it, it's it, it, you know the, the soul of football is, is just being um, eroded completely. Well, it, I, I think um, I mean the argument is they're increasing revenue streams to be competitive, not so it can all go into somebody's back pocket. And there are I, ways I, to. I believe that. There are ways to uh, to ensure that that happens. In fact, you could also make you, you can make an argument that um, you know if I'm Porto, the current situation where. I kind of you know, have a subscription to the Champions League every year because I always finish in the top three and I can third-party ownership and all this fun stuff. I'm basically minting it without necessarily being as good as as I could be. Um, Clive, I, I want to go to you because we talk about history in the domestic league. Ali made the point about, you know, they're not franchises, but you go back through history in this very country there were you know there was a situation where football was split between north and south before you all decided to go and play against each other um, you even had situations in this country where to get into the top flight you had to be elected as you being a Spurs fan very well know yes, and sometimes somebody bigger and stronger screws you over bigger and stronger I'll gloss well, over that one quickly but wealthier but it was you're right it was north-south but I get I, 
I may be wrong, but I'm kind of guessing that that was based on a sort of geographical and um, just a, a travelling kind of aspect. It makes the league far more manageable. It was still the north of England, the south of England, and there was a um, like a common community thing. There. The thing I don't like about the the idea of an Atlantic League is it's very much the name. Even even the Atlantic League, it's kind of floating out there as doing. There's no. Where's the commonality as a fan between Celtic playing? Ajax uh, playing Porto playing Copenhagen or I don't, I don't I don't engage with those sort of fixtures uh, and I'm not sure fans do either and I, th- I agree with Ollie I think it is I, I don't think it is based on the, you know on a sort of a competitive certainly a football competitive market it's based purely on an economic market that right. they want to generate more okay. money and be in a bigger pond Roy, we've heard from um, these two little Englander um, servants of the Premier League. You and I, of course, are big Euro snobs. Uh, We we, we were all part of a common united Europe, um, a Europe of the regions. Why can't we have this regional league? I want to talk about Yugoslav football, right? So until like 1991 and the death death of Tito, Red Star Belgrade won the European Cup. You, the Yugoslav clubs now are much less competitive because Dinamo Zagreb and Hajduk Split are in one league, because Red Star and Partizan are in one league, uh, because whichever the Bosnian teams are in one league and the Slovenian team, they can't. It was much easier for them to be competitive on a European level when they were all playing each other. When you had six, seven, eight big clubs in the same league, now because of the accident of history, those, those nations have become separate. So that, but politics basically the fall. So if I jump in there before we get firebombed by by certain nationalists, some might say it was an accident of history that brought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really like. Yeah, that 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 is that's what I meant. Rather than their their nationhood is a problem. So it can work in reverse. So we've we've effectively weakened all of those those teams because of because of politics and blah blah blah. Why can't it work so that so you you had a Balkan lead as long as that the fans could be controlled or a or an ex Soviet lead or a a Baltic lead with Estonia, Lithuania and Latvia a Benelux lead with Holland, Belgium and theoretically Luxembourg I don't understand why we have to be bound by the lines of nation states I don't think it's entirely fair on the clubs involved as Red Star Belgrade and Partizan would probably testify that you, you are at the mercy of the strength of your league uh-huh. I think those are very wise words from uh, from Rory, who I think is correct. Jabs agreed with me. This is amazing. Well, no, because because you, well, you agreed with me. That's why um, I'm oh. giving you props. Oh. And, and, and Damn all it! Hey, but Ollie, I want to get the sense here, though. I I, I I have difficulty understanding why you know Aachen in Germany should benefit from being in the Bundesliga, and 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 a team and a team in Edinburgh or or, or, or a team in, in Brussels. Should not, especially when some of these teams have, back when it was a more level playing field, you know, showed that that they could certainly compete and 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 you know, and attract lots of people to see them and 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 really write some of the, the most important pages of, of European history. Well, I, I, I do take that point, um, but going back to the start, I mean, I, I said if it was done as a supplement to what's already there, if, if there was some kind of cup competition that, that, that brought the best um, you know, in addition to the Champions League in addition to the Scottish League so instead of having you know, the, the, the sort of ludicrous Scottish football system where you know, it all, all divides up into playoffs and whatever and they play each other however many times if instead of that there was this 
thing where you basically had some kind of cup in addition to Europe uh, and there was some incentive to, to get into that and maybe it became um, you know that that would generate more money for the for the you know Dutch Belgian Scottish Swedish Danish clubs etc then I think that would be a perfectly good idea worth exploring but an idea which effectively kills Scottish club football and Dutch club football and basically means that clubs like Motherwell Hibs etc although they would be competing for a championship Scottish club football would be weaker than ever because it would you know, there'd be no broadcast deals with Celtic Rangers etc it would have no marketing value and I think it would just kill Scottish club football and, and I care far more about football at, at, a, at a local level at a regional level than, than, than caring whether the big clubs are, are maximising their revenues or not I, I, I care far more about a, a national game we could go on with this uh, for a long time, Skinner might say. We have gone on for this for a long time, but I'm pleased to say that Rory and I have uh, convinced Clive of our argument. So by uh, a vote of three to one, the Atlantic League passes. All right, time now for some quick hits. Spurs are held by QPR in a rather dull game. Uh, Clive, would you rather criticize Spurs or celebrate Harry and QPR? I'd rather do neither. It was a very dull game. I don't think um, Spurs had the chances. I mean, it was one of those where QPR latched onto a formula that they tried at Chelsea and it worked. So this time they didn't even bother parking the bus. They didn't start it up at all. They just kept it where it was. Spurs didn't have the nails to break them well, and when they didn't have the nails to break them down and when they did found Cesar in the way it was just that kind of day I'm not going to criticise Tottenham uh, and I'm certainly not going to celebrate QPR they've found as I said they've got uh, four points out of games against Chelsea and uh, Tottenham they're perfectly happy and uh, Spurs for once didn't lose any ground in that race for the top four uh, on a weekend usually when they drop points somebody like Arsenal or Everton capitalise this weekend nobody did anything really so there wasn't much to lose for Tottenham Sunderland pummel West Ham 3-0 with a lot of help from some horrid defensive mistakes Ollie define success for Martin O'Neill this season uh, success would be progress, basically. I mean, it's, it's you know we can look we can look at where they should be in the league. We can look at how many points they should get. But I think after a, a fairly miserable eighteen months or fairly miserable two years apart from the period where O'Neill first arrived, I think they've basically got to capitalise on what they've done recently. They've got to start showing that they can be a, a team who belong in the top half, whether it's this season or next. And they've got to you know re-energise their, their support uh, because uh, having been to the stadium like, a few times um, in the last few, few seasons I found it a, a fairly depressed crowd at times and I, I feel like um, the recent results can maybe re-energise the place like O'Neill did when he first came in so bigger, bigger attendances getting the supporters back on side getting better results looking like they can be a top-half team um, that would be success Okay, so right now it doesn't look too good. Uh, Fulham draw 1-1 with Wigan, and Giorgio Scaraguni scores a peach of a goal. Rory, you're one of the more committed Euro snobs on this podcast. Will you celebrate the brilliant Greek veteran? It's a little-known fact that Giorgio Scaraguni actually worked on the original statue of Olympian Zeus with Phidias uh, in 400 BC. He is one of the oldest men on the planet. I, d- I, d- I thought it was a slightly strange signing, Scaraguni. He's a good player. Oh, he was a good player eight years ago. Uh, I'd also... 
prefer to celebrate Franco de Santo, uh, who also scored a very good goal. You're just saying that because he's South American. No, well, no, I'm not. I'm saying it because he's, he's probably the least effective striker in the world, but he did score a very good goal. And it surprises me that we're in a 17th, because of all the teams around the bottom, they've kind of not done that badly this season. And I thought they were doing better than that. But no, the, yeah, uh, Caradun is fine. De Santo, fine. Slightly strange if you ask me about that game, to be honest. Sorry, George, you're not going to get much love this week. Reading pull off a stunning comeback to defeat West Brom 3-2. Clive, do you believe in dramatic victories that energize an underdog and send them on their way to safety? Uh, I'm not sure I believe in them. Um, I suppose there's a slight precedent from last season. People talk about QPR's comeback against Liverpool that kind of got them going and uh, kept them up I suppose. It was a a remarkable game. I had to laugh on her McDermott say, you know, I'll fondly look back on those last nine minutes uh, and I suppose if they use him like a golfer who visualises a great shot when he has to face with the same um, uh, scenario again then if Reading can hang on and keep in their mind what happened in those last nine minutes then yes it, it could possibly help them I don't think they're good enough to stay up to be quite honest I think they are as Rory said Wigan surprisingly down there even though they are playing very well Reading not consistent enough not got enough quality in that team to stay in the Premier League but um, if if they can hang on to what the sort of spirit that happened in that last nine minutes who knows uh, Ricky gets the better of Paul in the battle of the Lamberts as Southampton win at Villa uh, 1-0 but a lot hinged on that penalty awarded after Jay Rodriguez fell over Ollie your take uh, total dive uh, and I was considering doing a thing where I pretended I thought Jared Rodriguez was Spanish but I'm not going to do that um, it was uh, I mean people make apologies for that kind of dive and um, and ma- ma- maybe some of you would but um, you, this answer has fallen to the wrong person if you want uh, defensive diving people will say you know the leg was there he had to take evasive action well for decades and decades and decades people didn't take evasive action in that manner it's it's a ludicrous defence and apology of the dive if you think there's something morally right about diving well you're welcome to that opinion but I, I think it was a, a shabby way to win a game but uh, I don't suppose Southampton will care because uh, that is a very very valuable three points Jonathan Walters has a bad day to say the least two own goals and a missed penalty and Chelsea win 4-0 at Fortress Britannia but Rory Ba got the nod over Torres up front Rory, uh, you've read Rafa Benitez's book, so I'm guessing you might have some insight. Um, does he really have the cojones to bench El Nino on a permanent basis? I don't think I actually have read it. To be fair, um, I don't. I think he, I think he probably does have the have the cojones to, to bench Torres on a permanent basis. Yes, whether he will or not, I don't think so. I suspect he's brought Bar in as as cover, as supplement, as as an occasional replacement. I think at Chelsea Torres remains the, the main man for the next six months at least. If Benitez can't get him firing, then he won't be there for longer than six months, and I suspect neither will Torres. And Gab, one for you. I hear Juventus spent much of the winter break training and having a mini pre-season. How have things worked out for them since? Absolutely rotten, Rory, because they went into it uh, with uh, with an eight-point lead. And uh, now they've dropped five points. They they, they, they lost at home uh, against the Sampdoria side down to ten men. And uh, this weekend they drew 1-1 uh, with Parma. Um, there's some absences, a lack of intensity. People are saying it's, it's fatigue from uh, the, all those two-a-days, which uh, Conte had them do, um, which supposedly will pay off uh, in, uh, in in April. Um, I don't think they're in danger of not winning Serie A, but uh, it's time to uh, pull the uh, proverbial finger out. 
That's all we've got time for this week. It's been fun, and it's been real, and it's been real fun. Thanks to my guests, uh, Rory K. Smith, Clive Petty, and, of course, Ollie K. Speaking to you from his lovely conservatory in Snowbound Rippenden. You can find us on Twitter to share your thoughts, or you can email gamepodcast at thetimes.co.uk. So many of you do it every week, and we love to hear from all of you. Go to thetimes.co.uk for all your news, your views, your web chats, your blogs, your analysis, whatever you might need about this wonderful game we call football. Till next week, bye-bye. helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.